You're listening to an episode of Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge, the podcast dedicated to honest conversations with educators about what they do and, more importantly, who they are. I'm your host, John LeMay, and I'm here to highlight the complex and rich lives led by teachers with diverse interests, identities, and stories. Hey there. Thanks for joining me for this week's episode. This week, I speak with Josh Campbell, a middle school history teacher at a Montessori school in Memphis, Tennessee. Josh is also a storyteller and the creative director for Spill It, a live storytelling event based in Memphis. Josh is also involved with and hosts a couple different podcasts of his own, which he talks about near the end of the podcast, and you can find links for those in the episode description. Josh is also involved with and hosts a couple different podcasts of his own, which he talks about near the end of the episode, and you can find links for those in the episode description. We discuss the role that storytelling plays in Josh's life and in his approach in the classroom. Josh explains the Montessori philosophy of education and why he believes it's so effective and important. And Josh talks about how he became a more effective student and learner in college and beyond. And he reflects on why he didn't feel as much of a sense of ownership over his own education back when he was in high school. Also, on a somewhat related note, you may remember Sarah Koppelkam, who was the guest on episode 5 of the podcast. Sarah has a really incredible podcast called The Koppelcast, which is focused on reconsidering American youth. And it's returning for its second season this Thursday, September 6th. We're including a quick preview for that at the end of this episode, so be sure to stick around after the outro for some info on what to expect from Season 2 of The Cobblecast and how you can listen to it. Alright, really quickly, if you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, and please get in touch with us if you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests. Now, let's get into my conversation with Josh Campbell. Enjoy the episode! Hey, Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. All right, thank you. So what I'd like you to do to begin is go back to what I like to call the first day of school. So I'd like you to think about your first day as a full-time educator or just your first day as an educator in general, whatever day kind of works works for that um, that title in your mind. I want to know sort of how you felt or that day, what you can remember, um, just sort of large, large takeaways. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was listening to some of the other episodes and hearing other people describe their first day, and I could not remember my first day as a professional teacher. But I do remember my first day in student teaching. I was, uh, I do have my, I teach at a Montessori school, but I have my degree in traditional education. I have a history, history degree from Middle Tennessee State. And so I was over in Nashville, and they sent me to a high school to start student teaching. And I was going to okay. meet, meet my sponsoring teacher and all of that. And before we went, uh, my mom had taken me out and bought me a new suit and <laughs> uh, many, uh, a lot of dress shirts and ties. And, and um, she was very adamant that I would wear a shirt and tie and, and a jacket because, you know, you have to look the part. Sure. And so I showed up to my first day at Antioch High School over in Antioch, Tennessee. And I was very excited. I went to the principal's office and they had no idea I was supposed to be there. Oh, my God. And so I was sitting there. School started. The classes started. And I was sitting in the principal's office waiting to be told what to do. 
and my enthusiasm and swagger began to uh, fade very quickly. Dissipate. <laughs> and then a secretary took me around and tried to find a teacher who was willing to be uh, a sponsor of me, by my sponsoring teacher. And she just took me from room to room and every teacher said no. Oh my until, God. Until we got to the basketball coach. Uh, Todd Wigginton was his name and he was more than happy to have me teach his class for eight weeks. And, <laughs> and we got in there and he said, okay, go ahead. And I was, I think it was like, I finally found my spot about halfway through third period and all of my preparation and everything that I had done was just out the window and it was wow. off to the races from there. But it ended up being a really good experience. Uh, I, I enjoyed my student teaching. Um, but when it comes to when I started at the Montessori school, uh, I graduated from MCSU in December and I didn't want to start at a school halfway through the year. And, right. and, I, and I noticed in some of the episodes that I've listened to that that seems to be a common experience for people. Like they came in on someone else's maternity leave. Yeah, or, right, right. And I didn't want to be in that situation. So I waited tables for the spring of, uh, of 2000 and, uh, and then was just waiting to apply to the Memphis City Schools for the fall. And then my wife was teaching at the Montessori School and then they asked me to come over and take a tour, and it ended up that being kind of my first day. I was gotcha. observing, and then for the month of May, I was kind of in and out of the classroom, and by the time my first official day came around, I had already kind of been there enough that it didn't feel like my first day. So I don't quite remember that day, but I definitely remember my first day of student teaching. For sure. Yeah, well, it sounds it sounds very memorable. Yeah. And it's so funny that like you were literally being like shopped around like to these different teachers, and oh yeah, you know you like them actually say no to you because I think with a lot of student teaching or teaching intern positions, um, you really worry about feeling like a bother, and you worry mm-hmm. about like asking too many questions and. The job of the teachers is to really say like, oh, like, no, it's any, and, you know, it's no problem at all. Like, ask any questions you want to ask. We're here to help. But I guess what's good is that you learned very quickly that this wasn't the type of school where people would just say yes to say yes. So by the time you did find that teacher who said yes, even though he, you know, may have had, you know, ulterior motives, um, (laughs) it was you probably felt like he actually wanted to have you there, which I guess is a nice a nice way to do student teaching. Yeah, I mean, some of the teachers literally looked me up and down and said, "No." <laughs> you know, wow, so I guess was, I guess the suit I guess the suit didn't help. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like they didn't want this try hard in the suit uh, to bring. Right, right. But uh, yeah, but it ended up being a great experience. But uh, yeah, it was a rough first day. Yeah, it sounds like it. So we're because I know it's going to come up quite a bit because um, you currently teach at a Montessori school. Would you mind just saying a little bit about what a Montessori school is and how that differs from you know traditional education or other types of school? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, this is something that I, I have my own uh, another podcast that I do that's called the Pink Tower. That this is my my podcast is almost completely dedicated to this, explaining Montessori mm-hmm. High School to people. Um, and so what I do every time I have uh, Montessorians or some of former students or something, I ask them, what is Montessori, just to hear what their explanation mm-hmm. is, because it often is different for different people. But what I have come up with is that it's an alternative form of education where students work at their own pace, 
Most of the things are hands-on and with materials, and it is a student-centered approach as opposed to a teacher-centered approach. So that's mm-hmm. kind of my my uh, nutshell uh, description right there. Yeah, that makes sense. So is it more pro- Is a lot of the learning more project-based? Yeah. So in the middle school, what we do is uh, in the seventh and eighth grade. Maria Montessori is the founder of our method, and she laid out completely how you should do a preschool, how you should do an elementary, how you should do a later elementary. Uh, but she never really got to um, completely explaining how a middle school or high school would work. And mm. so we go up to middle school at our school. And so my job is to try to transition kids from Montessori to more traditional teaching. And so yeah. in order to keep the Montessori going, we do a lot of project-based work. And then we also sort of start introducing some testing and uh, textbooks and homework and things like that, just so they can be ready for those kind of things once they get to high school. So our our middle school is kind of like a hybrid thing. Yeah. But almost all of our morning work is all project based. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, we'll definitely go back to that and sort of talking about that approach and and why you why you believe um, why you believe in it. But um, I want to go back a little bit farther and, and ask when you realized that you wanted to be a teacher or that you wanted to be involved in education. Well, I've always enjoyed working with uh, young people. Uh, I was a, you know, I was a camp counselor uh, late, mm-hmm. late in high school and through college. And, and I enjoyed, um, and I, I really enjoyed just getting to know kids in that way and, and being around them. And so when it came time, and, and also I, I enjoy history, and I enjoy, I enjoy getting to know uh, students and their opinions and, and things like that. And so when you know, I started out in college, I was a theater major, and then I moved on to uh, communications, and then moved on to history. And really, I just mm-hmm. found out I like to, uh, I like, that's why I have 187 credits. <laughs> but the, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I, you know, eventually what I found out is I, en- I just enjoyed the interaction with students and, uh, yeah. and teaching whatever I, I can teach. You know, one of the things that my degree is in history, but in my class, I teach all sorts of different things. And so just teaching and learning. But really, I would say, okay, here's a, here's a good example. I really, when I was a camp counselor, I loved teaching archery. And hmm. archery is such an interesting thing because you can take a student out and with out a camper, and within half an hour, they may not be able to get a bullseye every time, but I could teach them how to hit the target almost every time. And it right. was like yeah. that sort of, that kind of taking someone from a beginner to even just sort of a knowledgeable novice within a half hour to 45 minutes is a really good feeling. Like you really yeah. feel like you accomplished something. And so when I teach, I kind of feel like I'm doing the same thing. I want to help them just hit the target and, and feel like I've, I've moved them forward in their progression. And after, you know, after seeing just, just that kind of interaction with, with a student or a camper really made me think this is what I want to do. Well, and it sounds like a great way to think about education because in in some sense it helps you cultivate a sense of patience with the students because you're just helping them along and setting realistic goals for them. But it also probably helps you cultivate a sense of patience within yourself as a teacher, which can be 
in my experience, the hardest part of, of being in education, because it's so easy to not even set high expectations for your students, but set high expectations for yourself and saying, like, I need to get them to this point. And if you feel like they're not getting there, it's really easy to get discouraged. But if you at least look at it as saying, like, you know, after I'm done teaching them, they can do something they couldn't do before, or they're a little better at something than they were before they were in my class or before this lesson. So it sounds like a good way to sort of conceptualize like what we do in the classroom. Well, I think in my in middle school, especially, I think it's more important to teach skills than knowledge, necessarily. Yeah. Like when I start out with my textbook, this year, we're using a textbook to, to learn about world history. And I tell the kids, I say, you're going to, you know, if you're, all of you guys are going to go to high school, you're going to go to college, you're going to, you're going to see this material again and again. You're going to see yeah. American history, world history, AP Euro history. You know, when you go to college, you're going to, no matter what you want to do, you're going to have to take a couple of histories. And so for me, whether they know exactly what the Magna Carta is, is one thing, but mm-hmm. being able to use, be a good writer, be a researcher, use that textbook as a tool, like that kind of stuff. Like, again, it's just like being able to hit the target in archery. It's like, you need to develop these skills so you can be a better student. And we're going to use the what we learn here to just get our skills up. So, yeah. And that's, and I always tell, you know, it's a process. That's what I always have to tell right. myself, especially in the Montessori. It's, it's a process and we've seen it work. And, and sometimes it's really easy to get down, bogged down in the day to day, but you also want to be, you just want to say that it's a process. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. You just want to make sure that yeah. the tunnel doesn't collapse on us, you know, in the middle. <laughs> right. So. Right. If you can get out without it collapsing, then you're in pretty good you're, shape yes. at the end of the yeah, day. Yeah, it's, it's, yes, you are. So let's go back even farther. Um, I'm curious about what you were like as a student. And you can start really at any point that makes sense in terms of thinking about your your general arc and trajectory as a student and as a learner. But what were you like um, as a student and as a learner? And, and how has that impacted you as an educator and your approach? Well, I was a, I was a horrible student. Uh, I, did, I did not. I did not. I, I always I was an avid reader. Um, I devoured uh, history books when I was a kid. And and any any sort of books I could get my hands on, I was always reading. Um, so when I went into classes, I typically kind of felt like I already knew enough uh, than what the mm. teacher was teaching me. And and I was one of those classic like, oh, he's just bored. Um, that's why he's not performing yeah. and, and things like that. Um, but what I found, so, you know, the teachers that I really liked are the ones that came at information in, in, a, in a different way. You know, I had, I had a friend of mine, all of my friends in high school were National Honor Society people, and they, they all got scholarships, and they all did these great things in high school, and um, uh, I talked to one of my friends about it one time, I was like, yeah, it's a bummer that, you know, I didn't, I didn't get all the accolades that you guys got and all that, and my friend said, you could have, you just didn't care enough, and uh, you know, right. like back right, right. I was like, yeah, that's probably right, you know, <laughs> and so I always tell people I'm a much better teacher than I am a student. And that really, when I, it started when I was in college and I was just never really that good at math in high school or anything like that. Uh, and I got into a college algebra course, like just a basic liberal arts math. And, mm-hmm. and I was struggling and then, uh, but I was in the theater program. And then one of the girls that I was in the program with asked me to help her study or to be her tutor. Mm-hmm. And so 
I said, yeah, I know all about it and I'll help you out. You know, I just wanted to spend time with this girl. Sure. <laughs> but what ended up happening is in order for me to explain it, I had to learn it. Mm-hmm. And so being a teacher actually helps me be a better student. Um, because if I have to explain it to somebody else, it makes sense to me. Right, 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 right. If I have to figure it, if I, if someone else is figuring it, uh, telling me, I, it, it never stuck. Yeah. So I had, I, I really had to become a teacher to find out that I was a good student. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and so I often say like, I'll, again, I'll talk to my high school friends and be like, yeah, I just wish I had myself as a math teacher back then. Right. And again, they're like. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you, know, like, you, you know, you 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 wouldn't have cared then either. Like, right. Yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. So, <laughs> well, some of it's also developmental, right? Like it could have just been like that. Yeah. You need to like work out all of the kinks in your, you know, in your brain and get the jitters out. That sometimes has yeah. to happen for some people. Yeah, there's a lot of kinks in there, John. Sure. Well, you're in good company. You're in good company. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, was there a particular teacher who, you know, you said that you, you really connected well with the teachers who kind of came at things in a different way. Is there a particular teacher or a particular lesson or whatever that, that kind of illustrates that for you? Okay. Well, another thing about my upbringing is that uh, we moved around a lot. Um, I was mm-hmm. in, um, I was probably in 11 different schools by the time I got to high school. I was in one high school. Before. Wow. We had moved around a lot, so it was difficult to get to know teachers and, and all that. So I've had a lot of teachers, and, and, and a lot of them I don't remember just because there were such brief times with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do remember one teacher uh, was my, uh, my eighth grade history teacher, who really was the first person who made me really like history. And, um, and like I said, I had already read everything, so he gave us the final on the first day of class. He gave us a U.S. history final. I was like, just take it, see how you do. And I got uh, like a 97 on it, like before <laughs> the class even happened. Uh, right. And uh, and, I, and I took the textbook home and I read the whole thing like within a couple of days. And so because I, I just love history. But uh, then when the end of the year happened, I took that same class. I got like a 93, the same test. So I did worse on mm-hmm. it at the end of the year. <laughs> but the... But what he would do is he just really brought himself into the classroom. He was a huge, we were in, yeah. in Orlando, Florida. Um, he was a huge Cleveland Browns fan. So he would wear like a Cleveland Browns jersey and, a, and just come in and <laughs> talk to us about that stuff. And, and, you know, that song by Billy Joel, uh, We Didn't Start the Fire. I mean, I'm sure every, uh-huh. I'm sure every teacher did this back in like 89. Uh, he came. He came through, and he just told us every single, every little historical reference. Oh my God! That Billy Joel made in that song. He he, mm-hmm. he explained it to us. Unpacked all of it. Yeah, and he would, and he he was at Kent State in Ohio during the shooting that happened at Kent State uh, mm. during the wow. '60s, and he brought in his yearbook and showed us the pictures of the people who were shot at Kent State, and talked about working on. Uh, the RFK campaign in Ohio mm-hmm. uh, when the assassination happened and all that kind of stuff. So he really brought all that stuff alive for us because it was yeah. his personal life story that we were that we were listening to. So um, yeah, so it was, that was pretty cool. And it was funny because he didn't back then. He for we didn't start the fire. He had to go through and listen to the song and write down all the lyrics. Like, cause you know, right, cause right. You, you couldn't get you couldn't on print them out. Yeah. You couldn't print them out. And, but also I think you could have looked inside the, the, the cassette tape and looked at the lyrics. 
Yeah, probably. And yeah. afterwards, we told him that, and he was like, "Oh man, I can't believe I had." <laughs> so he was just so that made me think, like, "Wow, this guy is really bringing himself in the classroom and giving us like taking a break from the rest of what we're supposed to be doing in the book and and really showing us a bunch of other stuff." Maybe that's why I didn't do as good on the final by the end of the year, but I, but I enjoyed his class. Right. But if he had asked you to list all of the re- or explain all the references, and we didn't start the fire, you would have uh, oh, aced that I one. Aced it for sure, for sure. Yeah, sure. that's great. I love it. So um, I want to hear a, a little bit about the role that storytelling actually plays in your classic. Because I know that you um, are also a storyteller, and just you talking about the way that your teacher, um, you know, has he brought his personal stories into the classroom and the way that he made certain things come to life. I'm curious if storytelling plays a role in your in your teaching at all. I mean, that's like we know each other through through Spill It, obviously. And, right. um, you know, for those who don't know, like that's a storytelling competition and forum in Memphis where it really encourages people to bring their stories and their personal narratives um, and, and perform them and share them with people. So that's obviously how I know you first and foremost, but I would imagine that that must have some sort of bearing in your approach as a teacher or the way that you interact with, with students. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I first, actually another teacher of mine that really made a big impact on me was my speech teacher in high school. Uh, she was also my English teacher and she, we did, uh, we actually did a storytelling event at our high school when I was in high school. And, um, and she has gone on now and she's the head of the Central Florida Storytellers Association or whatever. But that, that storytelling event that we had in high school kind of was like, okay, I feel like I could do something like this and I enjoy getting up in front of people and talking. Um, that's yeah. kind of why I went to the theater direction and all that. But for a long time, like the only outlet that I had for stories was my teaching, you know? Mm-hmm. And so as a history teacher, I feel like you're always telling stories. And, and I think that, you know, history is just the story of mankind. And it's not just a list mm-hmm. of dates and a list of names. It's like, I feel like it's something that should be told around a, a campfire or something like that. The same kind of yeah. awe and joy that we get out of that should be there. Um, when I am explaining a math problem, I, I love to talk about the story of a mathematician or uh an interesting thing that happened you know like the Apollo 13 disaster happened because some of the smartest people in the world got their math wrong right (laughs) and so telling that story to kids and saying don't be ashamed if you get it wrong it's about going back and checking your work and making sure it's right you know so telling a story like that hopefully gets them to see like the smartest people in the world mess up sometimes so yeah that you know if you can just I think teaching whether you're teaching history you're teaching math science I think storytelling is and that's kind of a cliche thing to say now. Like people are like, I guess I'm a storyteller, but right, know, right. <laughs> I think teachers have uh, have the uh, have a claim on that, and they, they really do. And so um, my friend Leah, she started Spill It, and um, you know my co-teacher was like, "You've got to do that because you're telling." She's like, "I sit here and listen to you tell stories to the, to the kids all day, and you're great at it." Right. And I think that that's part of it and so uh, other people don't don't have that experience of getting up in front of a crowd and I think that teachers have it all the time like you know it's just like and teachers know some of the toughest crowds around you know I mean you've got to (laughs) really you've got to really sell it if you're going to be 
telling stories to a bunch of uh, seventh and eighth graders, they're they're not going to you know, perk up and, and, and make you and applaud and laugh when you want them to. Right. So, right. They didn't pay to be there. No. Yeah. So they, they are, <laughs> they are, uh, they're a great test audience. Like we have, yeah. uh, at my school, we do a thing called the, we bring in a, a speaker every Friday from our community to talk to my students about something that they do. And we call it the Friday speaker series cause it's very creative. And, uh, <laughs> we, and I have some people who are like, developers, bankers, lawyers, doctors, just, you know, mm-hmm. people who are very accomplished and all of that. And they walk out of there and they're like, man, tough crowd. You have no idea. Yeah. 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 It's like, try it, try it every day. And, uh, yeah. And they, they come in and they're, they're nervous, you know, like these people, sure. who, you know, and I, and I have to prep the kids and say, guys, you know, be nice sit up straight, right. be attentive, because believe it or not, these guys are more afraid of you than you are of them. And, uh, right, right, right. And so, <laughs> you know, I think it's a great uh, it's a great place to tell stories, and it's also a great place to hone stories because of that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Do you ever do any work in terms of, like, bringing that, you know, because I think of stories and the realization that you have stories that are worth telling. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important development or realization for someone to to come into um and i i try to communicate that with my students you know in class discussions when it comes to like sharing their experiences um though i i am trying to do a better job of that but do you find like that that is something that you communicate to your students or like that because i know that you also obviously the st- the work you do with spill it um and you like run workshops and stuff like that do, do you find that that kind of skill and that that carries over into the work that you do in the classroom with your students? I think it's interesting what you said. You know, more often than not, I think that my work with my students spills over into my workshops. And I think it's interesting what you were saying about how convincing people that they have a story that people want to hear. I mean, that's that's actually the whole topic of the workshop that I do, is when people come to our storytelling events, they say, I don't think I could ever do that because I don't have right. a story. And I always say that is not, you know, that's not true. You know, we all know we have a story. We just don't think that we have a story to tell or that that people want to hear. Sorry. And I think what Spill It proves more than anything is that people do want to hear people's stories. And no matter how much you don't believe in your story, other people will. And so getting my students to to feel that way in seventh grade is, is easier in some cases than getting adults to feel that way. Like we think that we think of seventh and eighth graders as being these shy, awkward people, but in the end, I think they believe in themselves more than adults do. Um, so a lot of times the techniques I use with my students, we're talking about, even just talking about like the basic five paragraph essay, you know, of like, I'm going to tell you something, here are three supporting facts and this is what I told you. Like if you can bring a story full circle around like that, like you would in an essay, the audience is going to love it. You know, so it it just, it comes down to even just those simple things sometimes. Um, And really it's like, it's amazing to me that, that sometimes it's like the, in my workshops, I feel like I am just like in my classroom dealing with four or five people everybody is kind of working 
we're all critiquing each other. It's yeah. very collaborative. It's very Montessori in a way. And so I think both of them inform inform each other. Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. And a lot of what you're saying in terms of what it means to craft a good five paragraph essay or what it means to make a meaningful contribution during a class discussion like a lot of it is about like maintaining a connection Mm -hmm. with the people you're talking with and like having that exchange of of energy um, which is definitely carries over into what you you know want students to take with them when they leave your classroom Um, but obviously it definitely connects to what you do with your with your um, storytelling workshops. Yeah, and I, I, I meet with writers a lot. Um, and one of the things I always tell my students is always read what you write out loud. You know, think mm-hmm. about how it sounds. Because, you know, the person who's reading yeah. it, it's going to they're going to be reading it in their head and you want them to have the sound that you that you want them to have. And I so often write with re- meet with people in my workshops who are writers and want to try storytelling and they've never read their work out loud, right? It's right. it's only on the right. page, and it's like, well, how can you write, how, how can you know how it's going to sound to your reader if you don't know how it sounds at all? And to some people, they're, right. they're like, right. oh, my gosh, I can't, you know, <laughs> and then... I can't read it. Yeah, I can't, you know, I can't get up there and read it in front of someone and and all that, and it's like, well, you've got to, you know, that that's uh, right. that's part of it. And so in some ways, yeah, absolutely. There, there's a little more handholding with adults sometimes than, than with the kids. Right, right, right. <laughs> that totally makes sense. Um, shifting gears a little bit, I would love to hear your thoughts on how we as educators fail our students or what it looks like when we fail our students. You can think of that in terms of how the larger education system fails our students or how we as individual educators in individual classrooms fail our students? Well, I think what we do, especially like whenever I meet somebody and they say, what do you do? I'm a teacher. What do you teach? And I usually don't go into the whole Montessori thing, but I usually say I teach middle school. And, Uh And the people say, oh, God bless you, or oh my gosh, I don't know, I don't know how you survive it, and you know that. Right. And I'm always like, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But what we do, I think, with kids, especially at the seventh and eighth grade level, is that we expect them to act like young adults, but we treat them like young children. You know? Right. In the seventh and eighth grade, where I student taught after at the middle school, I student taught at. Um, we lined the students up to go to the bathroom. Uh, mm-hmm. We wouldn't let them walk in the halls from, from class to class. They had to they had to move from this area to this area. They had to sit, sit in a certain spot in the lunchroom and all that. And it was so rigid. And mm-hmm. there was so much kind of reward and punishment that was happening that um, they, they wanted to rebel against it. They they knew it wasn't they knew it wasn't fair, but also you know like a lot of times in, in education we think about that like progress is just an upward chart that you mm-hmm. start in first grade and then you're just going up and up and up in your knowledge and your maturity and all of that. But Maria Montessori talked about planes of development where you're in areas where you are 
gathering information and then you're applying information. And instead of an upward curve, it kind of looks like an EKG where you're going up and down, up and down, up and down. Right. And, and if you look at my level, uh, like say the 13 to 15 year olds, and you compare their playing to a toddler, they're about the same. Because right. in a toddler's environment, they are just finally kind of, they can walk, they can start grabbing things, they can reach out. And they're just trying to figure out where they are in the world. So they push boundaries, right? They they will do things like they will touch a hot stove just to see how hot it is. And, and you have to protect them in that. Um, right. And middle schoolers are kind of the same way. They've grown up. They have full uses of their bodies. They, they know not to touch the hot stove anymore. But they're entering into this adult world where they feel like toddlers and they're flailing around and, all that so yeah so you want to introduce them to this adult world you want to give them protection but you also want to give them responsibilities so that they feel like they have some skin in the game uh when it comes to an actual agency in their life and i think we end up giving that to kids once they get to high school like after that but it's too late in some cases um where we've already kind of stifled them so much that they're not even interested in entering into the adult world and they just kind of turn off. So I think- Do you think that has, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I mean, you have to give them freedom and responsibility with consequences yeah. that allows them to reach their own sort of conclusions without stifling them, I guess. Right, which is a pretty tough thing to balance. Yes, because they want to take it to the edge. They want to push the bound, they want a boundary. That's the thing that a lot of people like people get frustrated about teenage kids, especially early teens, is that they're constantly pushing. They want to know what they can get away with, like, you know, and they're testing the boundaries. And so you want them to kind of poke at, um, at that you want them to take it to the edge, but also to be responsible. So like, for instance, one of the things we talked, we were going to talk about student travel. Um, mm -hmm. When I take my students, we're going to go to Boston this year. When we go, mm -hmm. we're always surrounded by other kids that are in museums and are running around crazy and they're going wild because what happens is, is they, I see these other groups of students, they pull up in these big buses that they've probably been in for hours at a time driving from wherever they've come from. They unload them and they shuffle them right into the museum and say, you got two, right. two hours in this museum. They run crazy through the museum and then they take them right back out and shove them back on the buses onto the next museum. Yeah. When we do it, we arrive and we take the subway wherever we go. Now, I've only usually got about 15 to 20 students, so it's a little easier for me to do. But in the morning, I tell them, we're going on the Freedom Trail. You guys need to find it, and you're going to lead us all day today. So they wow. they got to get the maps out. They've got to find it. And I will... I, I'm getting a little older. I used to let them walk as far as they could in the wrong direction. But now I'm like, <laughs> after about four or five blocks, I'm like, hey, guys, you might want to check that map because I'm not walking right. like a mile out of my way anymore. But um, <laughs> but it, even just that, like giving kids the run of a city and saying, yeah. you've got to get us to from point A to point B, valorizes them and gives them a sense of responsibility that they really respond to. And so when you get to the museum, yeah. you're like, okay, we're going to be in here for a couple hours. They've walked, they've gotten this sense of freedom, and now they're not going to run wild and crazy in the museum. And, and security guards going to talk, come talk to me, and all that stuff. So that's uh, 
So just that, that's an example of where you can give them some freedom or responsibility that can be somewhat controlled, but also give them a sense of accomplishment. Probably. Yeah, that's incredible. So what, what I was going to ask was, do you talking about sort of that crazy balance that teachers need to achieve and all these different things that they need to cultivate in students in, in middle school, do you think part of the reason why I feel like even students kind of use middle school as like this punching bag of like, oh, like middle school is so terrible. Like yeah. middle school was, was the absolute worst. Do you think it, that has something to do with why it's so difficult for students or why in hindsight they feel like they have such a like negative experience? I mean, some of it could be the, the social stuff that's going on, but do you think it also has something to do with how teachers kind of fail to cultivate that sense of freedom and, and responsibility and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, and first of all, I, I love, I'd like to say I, I, I respect and admire traditional teachers, <laughs> even though the, the things that they, right. they do are, are, are very important. But yeah, I do believe that because, you know, the kids at seventh grade aren't, aren't that much different than the kids in ninth grade, right? Mm-hmm. But in middle school, let, let's say in my, my definition of like middle school is like seventh and eighth grade or maybe sixth, seventh and eighth grade, ninth is like in high school. I know people right. have different ways of doing it. But once they get to high school, it's like, okay, you're going to um, you're going to be walking from this class to this class. You're going to be going and buying your lunch. You are going to you need to go talk to your teachers. You need and they all of a sudden these ninth graders have all of this freedom and responsibility. And I think seventh graders are ready for that as well. But middle mm-hmm. school, it's like they're ready, but they are like a snake that is coiled. I mean, they're ready to strike out at the world, but they're stifled. Right. But on the other hand, like I'll go into our toddler environment and I'll see a three-year-old and they'll fall right out of their chair, you know? And it's like, Oh, they just don't have the body control. They don't do that. But then I come back to the middle school and one of my kids has fallen out of the chair. So, (laughs) so in the same sense, you know, they are flailing just like a toddler does. Um, and so there does need to be a protective area for them, but also like at our school, we have jobs at the end of the day, the kids have to clean up. Like somebody has to wash the dishes. Somebody has to vacuum. Uh, we have, Mm -hmm. we have chickens. Somebody has to go tend the chickens. And, and we always talk to them about, this is your environment and you get the environment that you deserve. If you don't clean the environment, you're not going to have a clean environment. And so they feel responsible for that. Uh, Same thing with social issues. Like, we have a town meeting every week where they need to talk about what's going on in the classroom. Like we have a lot of other things that we cover in that meeting. We have fundraisers, we have different things. We do the yearbook mm-hmm. and stuff, but you know, I'm always, we, I always tell them in those meetings, like it's really hard to get in a meeting and say, I think this is happening in the class and it needs to stop. I, you know, yeah. it's hard to do that, but it's that dirty work that you've got to do in order to make sure the environment that you're in is one that you that that functions just like we have to wash the dishes we have to talk about these issues so we try to give them an environment where all those things that people complain about in in middle school they get to confront them head on and kind of work it out and so yeah hopefully that it doesn't always work out the best like we still you know we still have people who have social issues and things like that but we hope that we give them the tools to to work with them so yeah, of course, of course. Is there anything in particular that you find yourself 
like reminding yourself of as as you navigate your way through education or something that you've learned in your time as an educator that you feel is like a pretty key takeaway um another way of thinking about it is that like a particular phrase or, or saying that you feel really guides what you do um, both in and out of the classroom as as a teacher yeah i think it's a conversation i mean that's i mean teaching is a dialogue it's not a monologue and so you've got to have give and take with your students and you have to let them know that what they're saying is just as important as what you're saying. And, yeah. and when you do that, I think, um, like, so when I start school every day, we do this thing called today in history where they have to bring in a news story and we just start out the day of me saying, who's got a news story. And sometimes it's just wacky news stories. There was some story yesterday some guy stole 800 pounds of lemons out in California. And that was the, the news story that somebody brought in. And so then I want to hear about that story. Tell me more. What did you read about it and all hmm. that? And what I'm hoping that they get from that is not that, you know, lemons, are, there's a good market for lemons in California, that I'm interested in what they have to say. And, and that I'm, I want, no matter how goofy the story is, and sometimes people bring in the news story of like my, my puppy had dogs or something like that. And when, when I react to that and say, oh, great, and, and really listen to what they have to say, I think it makes it easier for them to come to me later and say, I don't understand this math problem. Because they know that I want to hear that we're going to have a conversation about it and, and I'm going to listen to what they have to say because I've listened to their stories earlier. So I think right. that teaching is a conversation that you've got to keep going. As long as you can keep the conversation going and, and everybody can buy in, that was one of the things I did in that student teaching that I would make copies of the notes and then I would run. I got in a lot of trouble for using the Xerox machine too much at Antioch high school. <laughs> I would take my notes and I would make photocopies of them. And then I would come into the class and hand them out and say, these are your notes, study them. You guys did the reading. Let's talk about the French and Indian war. And, right. and then, you know, through that conversation, um, they already had the notes and we were able just to talk history and that's what I love to do. And so, and they all got 100s and they were all telling the basketball coach that he had to step up his game because uh, they loved not having to take notes. <laughs> so I might have ruined his right, class. Right. But that was like, and I've learned, and you know, I've learned since then you can't, you know, note taking is important and it's a good skill to have. Um, but uh, I always just like to have a conversation. Yeah, of course. That helps build a sense of, of trust and community, which is obviously something that you want yeah. your students to have in the classroom, but are also just qualities that you want them to take away from your class or whatever the academic experience is. Right, for sure. Um, what what role does traveling and like those those trips that you take with your students? Um, what role does that does that play um, for you? And sort of what is your intention behind that? I know you mentioned about the opportunities that it it provides for building, you know, a sense of um, for teaching a sense of responsibility mm -hmm. with for them. Um, but I'm curious, like, what else that that drive comes from? Well, I'm sure that you see it too. Uh, I mean, you, you work at a boarding school, and um, mm -hmm. Maria Montessori did write some essays about the adolescent and, and um, the teenage years. And one of the things that she said is that they had to be ripped away from their families. They had right. to, they had to find distance and find independence by going out and working on a farm or going to a boarding school or something like that. 
um, so they could start establishing their own identities away from their families. And mm-hmm. so every year I start the year out with a camping trip. We do a week long camping trip. We have a half day on Friday. And then last Monday we left and went on a week long camping trip. Mm-hmm. And the eighth graders for this year had planned it last year. We went over to Nashville, camped out in some cabins and went around and did a lot of Tennessee history stuff. So I'd love for them to learn about Tennessee history, but also by taking them and whisking them away for a week, it helps them kind of grow as a community and, and grow more in their independence. And then at the end of the year, we go to Boston this year, we'll go to DC next year. We kind of switch those out every year. Mm-hmm. Um, I like it because first of all, yes, you give them an opportunity to be free and responsible. Um, it's amazing to watch them. For many kids, it is the first time in their life where they have spending money and no parent to tell them what to spend it on. And yeah. so watching them, you know, buy the, the silly stuff that they buy is just outrageous. My son <laughs> was my student and um, he bought in DC a huge Panic at the Disco poster that, that <laughs> did not fit in his luggage and got crushed and all that stuff on the way home. Oh my God. And as a parent, you're like, oh, as a teacher, I would tell him, don't buy that. You know, you're wasting right. your money. Right. And as a parent, I was freaking out. But he had to make that decision, like, you know, so he, sure. he, he had to have that lesson. So just the, just that kind of stuff in travel, but also becoming a savvy sort of world citizen. Yeah. You know, we're, we're from Memphis, Tennessee. We don't have subway systems here. We don't really have a, a mass transit system that you can depend on. We don't have the diversity that larger cities have. Um, and so being able just to take the subway wherever you want to go, and, yeah. and being able to figure it out. It's like we usually, it's a, usually a four or five day trip. And usually it's by day four, they finally have the Boston T or the Washington Metro completely figured out. Yeah. And then they got to go home, you know? And they always say, why can't we have one of these in our city? Why can't we have <laughs> this kind of. And so even just to experience that kind of big city experience and make them a little more cosmopolitan and show them that there's a bigger world out there. Um, yeah. It's a great educational opportunity, but also during the year we start out, we, we do a whole unit on, uh, on the freedom trail on, uh, you know, the history of Boston and how that led to our, um, our war for, you know, the, the American revolution and, and the role that they played in that. Uh, we go to the JFK library. So we do a whole unit on JFK. We go to the Massachusetts museum of fine art and so we do a whole art history thing that takes us all the way through the museum. Um, because that's the other thing about it. If you don't prepare the kids for what they're going to see when they're traveling, they're not going to care. You know, if you, take, right. if you take them to the JFK Museum, they don't know JFK from anything. And they just go, yeah. they go straight to the gift shop. I've always yeah, said, right, right. As I, so I've always said I'm a professional museum goer because of all these trips <laughs> that I take. I would say <laughs> if you were to make a museum that was only gift shops, you would do great with the teenagers, but the, you know, right. the but we want them to, to get more of an experience out of it. So we do yeah, prepare them. We do prepare them. And then, and we raise money for it. So by the end of the year, they feel the sense of accomplishment that they went somewhere on their own. They learned all this stuff before they went there. They got to see the things that they had been working on. They got to, to see Paul Revere's house and all this stuff that they had been working on. And that comes to fruition. And so it's just a, a great, um, great experience for them. 
Right, and it sounds like it really is keeping in with the Montessori approach to education, mm-hmm. um, and it really, you know, it doesn't get much more student-centered uh, than, than that. Yes, for sure, for sure. So moving into the end here, um, what I'd love to do is um, throw a little challenge your way. Okay. Um, what I would like you to do is, to the best of your ability, capture your essence as an educator or pitch yourself as a, as a teacher, as an educator, to the best of your ability, using whatever comes to mind, um, in in thirty seconds. Huh. Um, wow. Okay. So seconds. I have, um, yeah. So I have uh, thirty seconds. Uh, I have a timer here that I can uh, show you to keep uh, keep you on track. Oh, okay. I will let you know when you have ten seconds left. Um, so I've got thirty seconds on the clock. Do you have any Do you have any questions? Uh, no. Let's go. I okay. Think okay. Uh, Awesome. All right. I will count you in. Uh, 30 seconds on the clock. I will count you in in three, two, one, go. As a teacher, I think I look at myself as a partner with the students. I always tell them that we are in this together, that we are taking the journey together, and together we will find what we need to find at the end. Again, it's a process, the Montessori method, um, but it really is about following the child, their desires, Ten seconds. their wants, and uh, being there to facilitate that. How's Beautiful. That? Okay. <laughs> that's that's great, and you have a couple seconds to spare. All right. Awesome. <laughs> so what I would like you to do now in the second round of this is do just that, uh, capture your essence as an educator, um, but do that to the best of your ability in 10 seconds oh. this time. Okay. 10 seconds. Okay, so I've got 10 seconds on the clock. Counting you in in three, two, one, go. I'm a facilitator for kids to reach their potential through education. And that might be it. Wonderful. (laughs) Wonderful. Awesome. Uh, And lastly, the third and final round, what I would like you to do is capture your essence as an educator (laughs) using just one single word. Uh, Okay. Huh. One single word. I. W- all right. One word. I would say now. I. I don't know if all of my students would agree with this, but when I. <laughs> so I do these. I do these student programs over the summer as well. So, I do travel programs. I did one uh, in Washington this summer, and one at St. John's in New York, and then another one at Yale. And I've done some. It's just like international summits where kids come from all over the world. And, mm-hmm. um, almost every time, and I, I, they always ask me, do you want middle school students? And I say, no, <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> so I usually, I usually work with the high school students and all that. I say, you know, I, I love middle schoolers, but I'm with them all year. Yeah. I'll, I'll take the right, older right. ones. Um, and so usually they say I'm chill. So as, cool. as an educator, <laughs> I, uh, I would say the high schoolers think I'm chill. So chill is yeah. the word I would say. Hey, that that's important. Yeah. That's important. There are a lot of a lot of unchill teachers out there. Yes. Um, so it's nice to get a little a little uh, a little taste of that. That's great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Josh. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, I I love the work that you know you've I've seen you do with with Spill It and and storytelling. Um, and it's you know Spill It was really like my favorite thing to do while I was in Memphis. It was cool. one of the first discoveries I made while I was there, and it remained. One of my favorite things um, during my entire my entire two years there. So awesome. it was great, obviously, getting to know you through that. Um, and it's very clear that you're doing awesome work with uh, 
with your students uh, as, as well. So I appreciate you giving me us so much of your time and, and sharing that. Hey, no problem. Um, so I, I also want to give you an opportunity. Uh, you, you have uh, a couple podcasts, I believe. Um, would you like to just tell us a little bit about, about those and how we can listen to those? Sure. Now, I mean, uh, you were already talking about Spillet. Uh, SpilletMemphis.org is our uh, website. You can find us, uh, the Spillet Podcast, which is stories that people tell at our live events. That's on at Spillet Memphis Podcast. That's on iTunes. I also do, if you're more interested in Montessori education, I do a podcast that's called The Pink Tower. We did one season last year. I'm, I'm gearing up for the second season. And in that, I talk to former Montessori students, Montessori parents, Montessori educators about what Montessori is to them and what the future of Montessori is and, and all of that. So if you're really interested in Montessori or alternative education, it's a good one to listen to. And then sort of the fun podcast that I do is I do one with my son. My son is 15 years mm-hmm. old, just turned 15 years old. It's called the Dad and I podcast. <laughs> and it is me just interviewing him about what's going on in his world and uh and the things that are interesting to 15-year-old teenagers. We don't talk politics. We don't talk current events or anything like that. We mostly talk about the NBA, sneakers, Marvel movies, <laughs> and things like that. So, And we interview... The essentials. The essentials. And I, 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 again, it goes back to what I say about if you talk to kids about the things that they care about and make those conversations easier, the harder conversations are easier down the line. So... yeah. What, what I try to demonstrate with dad and I is that it's just a dad and a son talking with him and his friends about things. So th- the dad and I podcast is another one that I'm working on. Yeah. So. And I've caught, I've caught a little bit of that and it's, uh, it's super, super fun. Oh, it's really, good. really well done. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. awesome. Yeah, definitely. Definitely check all of those out. Um, it's all really, really good stuff. So thank you once again, Josh. Uh, again, I really appreciate it and, uh, you, uh, take care of yourself. All right. Thanks a lot, John. Thank you to Josh for sharing so much during our conversation. And don't forget to check out his podcast, which you can find in the episode description. Also, stick around after the intro is done for a preview for season two of The Cobblecast. Finally, we're off next week, so we'll be returning two weeks from now with a brand new conversation. This podcast was created and hosted by me, John LeMay. Our associate producer is Emily Muller. Our cover art is by Katie Cooper. And our theme music is You Need a Visa by Really From. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll join me next week for another episode featuring another teacher and another story. Do you know any interesting youths? If your answer is no, you're wrong. On The Cobblecast, we show that youths have something to contribute. The Cobblecast is a podcast out of Woods Charter School in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Every week, we talk to youths about their lives, beliefs, and passions. On season two, we're back with a new co-host, and we're reaching beyond the walls of Woods to show that all youths have something to say. We also have a shiny new website. If you or any interesting youths you know would like to be on the pod, go to thecobblecast.com and fill out our sign-up form. Also on thecobblecast.com, you can catch up on season one using your preferred podcast listening platform. Episode one of season two will be available on September 6th.